Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I have to say, when Dylan Scott mentions having twins and Dylan Matthews is like, I would like to enlist you in something, I figure it's going to be a twin study. Sure. (laughs) No, that's an IRB still. (laughs) (laughs) We're taking copious notes. Don't worry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and today I'm joined by our regular co-host, Dara Lind. Hello. And Dylan Scott, a senior correspondent at Vox covering healthcare and arguably the best Vox senior correspondent named Dylan. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a vicious debate in the newsroom. Many people are saying. (laughs) Um, uh, So today we're going to be uh, talking about a longstanding issue in American healthcare and and one whose sort of costs and burdens have become increasingly pronounced as the pandemic rages on, which is the shortage of healthcare workers. You've probably been hearing about the nursing shortage for many years. Uh, I remember hearing about that maybe in the mid-aughts, so that's been going on a long, long time. But the U.S. also has various policies that artificially limit how many doctors can practice. Uh, it has limits on what specific categories of health workers can do, what you can do if you're a medical assistant versus a CNA versus a nurse versus a nurse practitioner versus a physician's assistant, and on and on through all the many different acronyms. So Dylan Scott, you just wrote about this and in particular about sort of our inability to surge health worker capacity during pandemics. So could you walk us through sort of the, like the basic contours of the problem as you see it? Yeah. So I think there are like two sides to this coin. There's the public health side and then the clinical side. So the clinical side covers a lot of what you just described. Like we have shortfalls with uh, nursing staffing and we have just all these regulations and rules that limit both, yeah, the number of medical personnel that can practice, but also the kind of services that they can provide. And, you know, During normal times, uh, hospitals have kind of every incentive to staff themselves at sort of like maximum efficiency. You know, there's not – there's no money to be made in like maintaining a surge capacity, you know, when there's not a pandemic. And arguably, you know, we wouldn't necessarily want them to because that would only kind of artificially keep costs even higher than they already are. But like there was obviously a very uh, limited ability to create a surge capacity, which I'll get back to in a moment. But then on the public health side – that is a place where we've also like really underinvested in the human infrastructure there. So like over the 10 years before 
before the pandemic happened, uh, local and state health departments, which are obviously kind of the core of the public health system that exists in the U.S., uh, had lost like 15 percent of their staff over that period. So we started this situation with sort of a dramatically underfunded and understaffed public health system. You know, there have been some attempts to kind of quantify the problem. And uh, there was a, an analysis that came out that estimated, like, if we wanted to properly staff, you know, state local health departments just to provide sort of the bare minimum public health services that we would want them to be able to provide, we basically would need to double their staffing. So, like, we currently have about 100,000 of those workers. We really need more like 180,000. So, like, on the clinical side, you know, we're kind of running at maximum efficiency all the time within all these kind of restrictions and limitations that are placed uh, at like the state level, especially with rules about scope of practice or at the federal level about like you referenced, you know, how many doctors can kind of enter the pipeline to get into the medical uh, workforce. And then on the public health side, we just had been, you know, chronically underfunding and understaffing those kinds of activities. So we were we were compromised from the start. But then once, you know, the pandemic happened, there was not really the ability to cre- create, you know, to surge our, our medical workforce either. So like we do have a couple of of pre-existing programs that are meant to provide some kind of search capacity. There's the uh, Public Health Service Commission Corps, which is like uniformed officers. Uh, there's about six uh, 6,000 of those. And actually, like in normal times, about half of them are deployed to the Indian Health Service. So it's not like those people are just like sitting around waiting for a pandemic. Like if we redeploy them somewhere in the country because there's a public health emergency, that's leaving behind marginalized communities that are going to have less healthcare access as a result. And then there's also uh, the Medical Reserve Corps. The number of people involved in that is about 200,000 people. But, like, it's an entirely voluntary program from talking to, to experts on this thi- on this kind of thing. Um, kind of implementation varies really widely across the country. It ranges from, like, people who are clinicians or public health professionals, but it's also just, like, lay people who maybe want to get involved because this is another program that's administered at the local level. And, you know, for some of them, like, all they could really do was, like, staff call centers and that kind of thing. You know, some of them did help with, like, contact tracing or with setting up testing sites and that kind of thing. Uh, And, you know, even in a place like Seattle, Washington, I talked to Betty Beckmeyer, who's a a professor at the University of Washington and and studies the public health workforce. Even there where they have, like, invested quite a bit in their medical reserve corps over the last, you know, five years or so, it still wasn't sufficient for what they needed for COVID. Um, So we had both, like, in, in terms of kind of the infrastructure we hadn't been investing enough in public health and just the way we run our healthcare system doesn't create a lot of incentive to create surge capacity on the clinical side. Um, and then like we just didn't really have the programs or the protocols in place uh, to dramatically surge our, our healthcare workforce uh, when something like COVID happened. And, you know, I mean – to be fair, like we'd never really stress tested our system like this before. You know, you, there were all these right. kinds of assessments of like public health readiness before COVID and like the U.S. always ranked at the top of those. Um, and so like, you know, you kind of don't know what you aren't capable of doing until um, until you're you're put on the spot like we were. But, you know, the if there's any small silver lining of what's happened over the last two years, I think it's you know, become evident to everybody what it would take to be able to to marshal a, a more adequate response if this were to happen again. So I have a bunch of questions, most of which are super elementary. Mm-hmm. And like, Dylan, because you, Dylan Scott, <laughs> because you distinguished between the clinical and, you know, public health sides of this, I'm wondering 
What does the public health infrastructure on the ground look like? Does it really look that distinct from clinical infrastructure? Is it a different kind of workforce that would be needed? Like, why is that a different face of the problem rather than just like a lot of institutions pulling from the same very depleted pool? Public health is like your local health department, your state, especially your local health department. Like, you know, three-fourths of the public health workforce is employed by local governments. And so they're doing things, you know, especially in normal times, you know, they might be running like, you know, immunization clinics. Um, you know, they're, they respond, you know, to smaller, more acute outbreaks, like if there's a local measles outbreak, that kind of thing. And, you know, so they're trained more in like those kinds of preventive activities, um, you know, responses to disease outbreaks specifically, you know, your MPHs, those kind of folks. And obviously that was a really important need um, during COVID. And like, you know, we do do like contact tracing in normal times, though largely for things like STDs. So like, that's what some of those folks are trained to do. On the clinical side, you have like your nurses, your RNs, you know, your uh, nursing assistants, and you know, that whole, you know, alphabet soup of uh, various staffing roles in like hospitals, especially. The public health people would be tasked, uh, in my mind anyway, with like, you know, disease surveillance, you know, maybe setting up testing sites once we had vaccines, setting up vaccination clinics, uh, that kind of thing, performing contact tracing, certainly. But then, uh, you know, obviously people were getting sick, you know, ending up in the hospital. And so then you had the clinical need there of nurses who know how to administer medications and uh, monitor patients for deteriorating condition, that kind of thing. So those are the kind of why I think of those as sort of like two distinct but related buckets. So we mentioned sort of uh, health departments at the um, sort of county or, or state level earlier. We've certainly heard more about those lately than than in a typical year uh, over uh, since since twenty twenty or so. But I'm I'm still sort of not fully up to date on what what their their responsibilities are vis a vis like the CDC or, or individual hospitals or things. So can you walk us through like the the role those play in the system and sort of what role they've played as the pandemic has played out? Your local health department is like the front line of public health. Like they are a lot of the responsibilities, certainly before COVID and even during COVID, um, for the kinds of things that I was talking about, like chronic disease management, you know, immunizations, those sort of things are delegated to the local level. That's why like three-fourths of the public health workforce is situated in local governments. And I think that gives them like a lot of discretion and autonomy about how they want to run their programs. Uh, Then, you know, at the, you know, one step up, you have state health departments, which make up about another fourth of the the workforce. And, you know, they help kind of set like slightly higher uh, level kind of priorities and, you know, programs. Certainly they can be deployed, you know, in acute uh, emergencies to help the local health departments. And really at the federal level, like the CDC is primarily in my mind, kind of like it's a, it's a guidance making kind of operation. You know, they are, they are certainly meant to kind of, you know, take a, a more holistic national picture, um, but, like, they don't have the same kind of capabilities to set up testing sites, to set up vaccine clinics, to do contact tracing. Like, their their role is much more to kind of assess, like, what's going on with the pandemic, what would be sort of the best policies for trying to mitigate its impact. Um, but, like, as the Biden administration and the Trump administration it ran into time and time again, like, they can say, like, this is what we think people should do, this 
this is what we think the guidelines should be. Uh, but state and local governments have a ton of discretion about whether they really want to follow those guidelines. It seems not. a lot more like car talk than AAA. It's like you call call <laughs> this you call the the CDC. They tell you like how to fix your transmission, but they're not going to like go to the they're side not going to send somebody out. Exactly. <laughs> um, Something that helped me a lot in understanding these health departments is uh, uh, an obscure writer named uh, Michael Lewis um, wrote, a, <laughs> wrote a, a, a little book called The Premonition. And a lot of it is about this woman, Charity Dean, who ran the health department in Santa Barbara County. And it was funny in that, like, she realized it's a very vague position. And so she had all these powers she could use, like like quarantining people if they'd been exposed to tuberculosis. But precisely because it's vague – which county uses it which way seems wildly different. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. And this was certainly another place where, like, there were big disparities across states and regions. Like, you know, there are certainly places like Washington State, I think, is held up as an example of a place that has invested a lot in public health over even, you know, before the the latest emergency. But, like, you know, especially, you know, with uh, the lingering effects of the Great Recession on on state and local budgets. And certainly I think there were parts of the country that just – didn't see this as a point of emphasis. And so I think that also, you know, compromised a lot of places' ability to respond. The other question I have to kind of get my head around this is about skills, right? Because, like, you mentioned that the Reserve Medical Corps may not have been trained in contact tracing, you know, that kind of thing. But it does seem like, you know, things like contact tracing, setting up vaccination clinics are not super difficult to acquire skills. Those are trainable, like, in a fairly short amount of time, certainly compared to, like, being a doctor or nurse, both of which are, you know, extremely, like, credential gate-kept professions that, unlike a lot of other credential gate-kept professions, there isn't a whole lot of, like, no one is really pushing to abolish the MD requirement (laughs) to practice medicine. Um, So it does kind of seem like we're talking about, you know— on the public health side, a problem of workforce that, like, may not be ideally sufficiently trained, but where there's, like, where you don't have to worry that you don't have exactly the right credentials of people. But on the clinical side, it seems like a much harder problem because how do you have a reserve of people who have nursing skills and have bothered to invest the time and money into acquiring them and aren't using them on a regular basis? Yeah. No, on the public health side, I think it's much more just a matter of resources. Like, yeah, you can train people, I think, relatively quickly to do things like contact tracing. It's just a matter of having the money to hire them and train them. And and that's where I think the shortcoming has been most in public health. Yeah, on the clinical side, you know, we have things like, you know, the, the limited number of residency spots that exist for doctors. Um, you know, we have caps on like how much we're willing to kind of reimburse nurses for their educations, those kinds of things. Um, and so that I think um, that is a that's a space where like, yeah, you can't just suddenly create a hundred thousand doctors or nurses. I think there are certainly things, and I know we'll talk about it, that you can kind of do pretty quickly to at least like maximize what you're getting out of the medical workforce that you have. Um, but then there's also a question of like, yeah, how much do we need to be doing to actually like, grow the medical workforce, both so that it can better serve people all of the time, but also so that we have some kind of capacity to respond to to an emergency. I was actually talking for a different story about things related to this, and he made the point to me that, like, 
we do have like a lot of nurses, and I'm, this is probably true of doctors too, though we were talking specifically about nurses, who have gone through the training, who have acquired those skills, but they have like left the profession for whatever reason, which is obviously, you know, staff burnout and retention is sort of its own, its own element to all of this. But like that does speak to like there is – arguably some a, a surge capacity to tap into, but it's about having like the protocols and programs in place to tap into it because it's not like you can just suddenly, I don't know what you would do, like post something on Facebook and say like, <laughs> hey, all, all you like not practicing nurses, could you like come help, help us out? Like you needed a little more formal process than that. Um, and right, so on I, the other hand, like you can totally imagine, you know, there being legit civil liberties concerns if Congress were to pass a law saying once you retire from the nursing profession, you must add your name to the former <laughs> nurses registry. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, there might be some 13th Amendment issues. <laughs> right, sure. But like, you know, one of the ideas that was floated by me was the idea of like a, a kind of nursing National Guard, which certainly, you know, to your point, would be on like a voluntary basis. But what the idea would be to kind of keep people tethered to the system, you know, maybe much like the National Guard does, you have kind of periodic trainings or something so that people can keep their skills fresher. But to your point, kind of a reason that you want to have sort of like well-constructed capabilities to tap into that that rather than like either just not, which certainly seems like a wasted opportunity after what we've seen over the last couple of years, or trying to do it on the fly in the middle of an emergency. We're going to take a quick break, but then we're going to talk about uh, some policy solutions to our health worker shortage, like the Reserve Corps we were just talking about then. So stay with us. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. 
And we're back. So, Dylan Scott, we were just discussing sort of the idea of a reserve core. You have some other kind of policy options for boosting sort of health worker supply. Sort of setting reserve core aside for the moment, what are some sort of like permanent clinical things since we do have some constraints on sort of how many people are just like practicing in hospitals and private practices and, and whatnot. Right. So yeah, like Congress literally uh, through a mechanism in, in the Medicare program, like sets a number on how many doctors can enter the medical, you know, medical school pipeline and, and, and even down to like what specific specialties they're supposed to pursue. I mean, one thing that has already happened is Congress has approved like an additional 500 primary care residency slots. And so, you know, that is one way in which we can more permanently expand the medical workforce and hopefully kind of better tailor it, you know, both in general, because like, you know, we don't need to get into like the value of primary care right now. But like, certainly when you think about like what you'd want in a pandemic response scenario, certainly want doctors who maybe specialize in infectious diseases, but then just primary care uh, is obviously going to be people's, you know, usually their first point of contact, you know, if they get sick or, you know, want need to be tested or vaccinated or what have you. And so having, you know, more primary care doctors certainly seems like it would be worthwhile. Nursing, even I think more so than doctors is another place where the argument was made to me that like we could invest a lot more. Um, I was made aware of like the enormous discrepancy in in federal spending on like MD doctor education versus nursing education. I believe, I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but I believe it's we spend about $15 billion a year on doctor's education and about $250 million a year on nursing education. Um, and, you know, this goes back to, this is actually a piece that I'm working on now, kind of a a fundamental problem in how, like, we value nursing. Because, like, you know, if you go to the hospital, you don't really get billed for, like, what the nurses do. Like, they don't generate a, right. they don't generate revenue for the the hospital, but the doctors, they do. Because, you know, they can bill for all the services that they, you know, the services that they provide are literally just, like, their time. And so, like, that's sort of a, a longer conversation of how we might better value nursing and how we pay for healthcare. But just more straightforwardly, like we could invest a lot more money in in educating and training nurses. And likewise, certainly on the public health workforce side, I think as we've already covered, like there's a there's a good argument that there's a, a tremendous shortfall on how much we're spending on on our public health workforce. So those are sort of like I think structural changes that that some a lot of the experts I spoke to for this story would like to see see made. You know, but then there are certainly things that we could do that are more like flipping the switch. Right. You know, training more doctors and educating more nurses is a long-term project. Um, and we don't know at this point, you know, when the next public health emergency might occur. So, you know, there, there are things like scope of practice limitations that you could change. So like, you know, every state is different, but states have rules about like, you know, doctors are allowed to do this, you know, with this level of certification and nurses are allowed to do this, you know, under, you know, maybe it needs to be under a doctor's supervision or not. And so one of the things that that would be relatively easy to do, and we saw in kind of a patchwork way during COVID is like relaxing some of those restrictions to go back to what I was saying to Dara, like that's a place where it's about maximizing the healthcare workforce that you already have. So if you let doctors do more somewhat beyond what they might ordinarily be allowed to do with their licensing, or if you allow nurses to do things like prescribe medication because like they can see with their own two eyes that like 
the patient needs X. And like, you know, they have enough training and experience to be able to make that assessment. There might be reasons that ordinarily we don't allow them to do that. But like, you know, when you're trying to get the most out of your hospital staff, maybe it's time to, to relax some of those rules. Um, we have other things like, you know, there are certainly like retired doctors, you know, we license doctors on a state by state basis. Maybe, you know, a doctor's moved from one state to another and is no longer practicing. Maybe somebody moved from another country and has a foreign medical license but hasn't gotten licensed here in the in the United States. Relaxing some of our, our licensure and certification requirements for those folks would be an easy way. Uh, to get more medical workers out in the field in the middle of a pandemic. Even like, you know, somebody made the point to me that like the senior year of a nursing student's education is like electives like leadership and that kind of stuff, which not to be, you know, not to diminish the importance of those kinds of things, but like they've had all their clinical training already, right? So like maybe we should, in an emergency situation, we should license those people to go out and start actually practicing uh, up to the level of training that they've that they've received. But with that that kind of stuff, with like scope of practice and some of these licensure changes, like maybe half of states did that during COVID, maybe uh, less than half, I think, in some of the, with some of these things. So it was very much kind of a, a patchwork response. Um, and so I think what experts would like to see going forward is both like a recognition that like these things are valuable and can um, help us in a pinch uh, expand our, our healthcare workforce's capabilities, but also like as part of that, we need more uniform adoption of, of these kinds of policies. So it's definitely kind of a, a two-step of like how can we yeah how can we both increase our, our short-term ability to respond because who knows when the next outbreak is going to happen but then you know how can we invest in the in the healthcare infrastructure in a longer-term way just to create you know a more capable staffing. I want to go back to the the medical education gap that you identified and like I'm sorry if I'm going to force you to scoop yourself because uh, I know you mentioned you're working on a piece about this but like it seems plausible to me that part of this gap might be that like universities as a whole, medical schools are serving both as training centers and research centers, right? Mm. And so there's an argument that money that you're putting into medical schools is, you know, potentially going to be generating new medical knowledge, whereas, you know, nursing and public health programs tend to be seen as professional certification programs, right, where yeah. you're just doing the education function. Like, you know, can can you turn a nursing program into something that's also going to generate knowledge? Or is this just a matter of we need to do a better job of understanding that, like, the amount of money being poured into medical schools is way disproportionate to the extent to which they're generating knowledge as well as human beings? That's a great question, and I don't have a good answer on the research side, though I'll maybe circle back and ask some people about that now. Um, but I do think I do think maybe as fundamentally there is just the problem that I was describing before of, like, how we value nursing. And mm -hmm. so, like— you know, in, if we don't value nursing and like how we pay for healthcare, basically, then like there's hospitals are making economically rational decisions to minimize their nursing staffing, which obviously sort of puts a, a downward pressure on the pipeline too, right? Because like there are only so many jobs available, and that's just going to kind of self-limit how many people enter the field. And so I think you know imagining ways that we might better value nursing it through how we pay for healthcare would arguably be one way to like to help to balance that that kind of 
mismatch that you described. It could be that like we could like generate more like medical knowledge or what have you by investing in more in nursing and public health. But I, I think there's also like kind of a value proposition there that could be made, um, you know, but it would require, you know, reimagining to some extent how we like, yeah, pay for healthcare and, and those kinds of things. This is perhaps like a little too far afield uh, since solving the issue of, of our supply of health workers is perhaps enough to bite off. But we passed a whole law in 2010 whose whole point in part was to to sort of change how we pay for health care and sort of move away from fee-for-service. Did Obamacare like wind up doing much there? It seems like we're having the same kind of conversations about the same perverse incentives around fee-for-service right. that we were having in 2009. I have to say one thing before I answer your question, which is I learned in the course of reporting this story that Obamacare actually created what was called the Ready Reserve Corps. It was going to mm. be kind of like an offshoot of the Public Health Commission Corps that I referenced before. But this won't surprise either of you, uh, because of like a technical error in how the law was drafted, awesome. they didn't set aside the funding for it. And, you know, obviously, like once Republicans took over uh, one House of Congress, any new funding for Obamacare was dead in the water. Uh, so that program just sort of languished, you know, existing on paper only for 10 years, though as a part to, you know, Congress's credit, as a part of the CARES Act, uh, they did finally set aside funding for it. And I believe I saw like early last year, they finally started staffing that up. But like, we started staffing it up almost a year into COVID. Um, this program that like had existed on paper for 10 years, but we had just failed to put any resources into. So anyway, that's one way in which <laughs> Obamacare failed us um, ahead of COVID. But the ACA, as much as the affordable was built into the uh, the name and the branding and, and how the Obama administration and Democrats framed the law – Largely, it has funded like pilot programs, right? Like accountable care organizations and other uh, programs run through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services meant to kind of reimagine how we pay for healthcare, figure out ways to pay for value instead of volume and that kind of thing. And like, I think there's two things that have kind of limited the impact of those programs. One is like they were pilot programs that like did not really kind of create any like long-term like, well, if this works, then like th we're going to change how healthcare is paid for in the United States. Like it was just sort of, we're going to run a bunch of experiments and we'll see how it goes and like we'll kind of come back to it later. But the other piece of it is that like, you know, I think the results for most of those projects have been kind of mixed. Um, you know, like ACOs, I know specifically it's been like, well, we've saved some money, I guess, and like quality seems a little bit better, but like it hasn't been some kind of like resounding success that like was impossible, would have been impossible for Congress or future administrations to ignore. Um, and, you know, because fixing healthcare obviously is really hard. So the, it was more of kind of a, a first step down the road to, I think, remaking or reimagining how we pay for healthcare. And for a variety of reasons, both because of just, you know, the limited scope of what the ACA actually authorized and a limited ability of what we've tested so far to actually deliver that kind of promise of better care for a lower cost, we are still largely in the same place that we were 10 years ago. It sounds like the same kind of problem that government pilot programs often have, which is that their determination to actually help people and therefore stay within already accepted best practices, they are not as complete a break with like the existing state of knowledge in the field as they should be. Like, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense, especially in the healthcare context, that if you're at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Studies and you are trying to figure out which pilots to like pour money into, you're going to be going with the things that are most likely to succeed 
succeed, but the point of running this kind of pilot program is to demonstrate success where success might not have been expected. Right. And so, you know, that that means that you essentially have to have, like, grant authorizers who are like, I don't care if people don't get the care that they would under a more conservative program right. because we're trying to see what happens in the weird event that they do. Yeah, well, and like— to your point, as soon as you start setting up these programs, you start making compromises, especially because of the influence of the health industry. And so like with – I think it was with ACOs or one of the similar uh, models that they set up, like I think the most ambitious version of those kinds of programs would be like, well, if you deliver really shitty health care, then like you're not – you're going to lose money. Like you know, mm. we're going to actually like penalize you for delivering really shitty health care. But almost immediately as those programs were actually like being drafted and they started entering negotiations with healthcare providers about how they set them up, a lot of that downside risk started to get eliminated. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And so it became entirely sort of an upside. Like if you do like, you know, hit certain benchmarks or certain uh, quality targets, like you can make more money. It was a lot of carrots, uh, but the sticks were were kind of slowly whittled down um, over the course of actually setting those programs up, which I think speaks to the problem that that you're describing. I did want to ask a little bit about the the commission core. So, like, this is something that's that's confused me for a long, long time, and and, and now I have you here, and I can and ask annoying persnickety questions about it. Um, but, <laughs> I hope uh, I can answer them. Uh, but yeah, like the analogy that seems to draw is to like the military, mm-hmm. and if I want to join the Marines, like they would probably say no because my fitness is dog shit. But like, there's an office I can walk into and join the Marines. My sense is that, like, the Commission Corps doesn't really work like that, that there are higher bars of entry and there are, like, only specific things you can do in it. And it's also just dramatically smaller than any of the armed services. Right. Like, what is the kind of health of that? And, and are there, like, plans you've seen to try to reinvigorate it? I have not really seen it be a point of emphasis um, in terms of, like, what we could do next or what we could do better going forward. It has actually, like, shrunk in size to some degree over the last, I don't know, 10 to 20 years. It used to be about 10,000 people. And now I think I said before it's more like 6,500. So, like, it's not been a point of emphasis. I think that's probably partly the barriers of entry that you're describing. Um and so, you know, I, I they did, you know, step up and finally fund this Ready Reserve Corps, which right. is kind of a piece of, of the Commission Corps. Like, maybe um, – this is just me guessing as much as anything. But, like, given how essential it has become, I think specifically to the Indian Health Service, like I said before, like, about half of the Commission Corps, you know, in non-emergency times is deployed to, to those sites to provide health care. Like, I just don't know if it's seen as sort of a, a particularly effective – Avenue, like it, right. it's telling. I think that the Biden administration, with after President Biden was elected, came in saying like they're not talking about like expanding the Commission Corps. They were talking about like we need to create a new hundred thousand person public health workforce right. corps. And so, like you know, maybe partly because it's uh, you know they don't want to continue going down the quasi-military path. Maybe because of the way that those people are already being used. I think it is just sort of you know. It's and it and it just doesn't yeah have the the kind of scale that we would need. Why is the answer to create more different or national service programs like it seems like there's a like an alternate path where the decision is just made to invest in AmeriCorps to staff up exactly these positions right and like yeah. it does seem that if you're talking about a surge capacity in particular that having a workforce that is largely like 
young people who have undifferentiated skills but a lot of eagerness, Mm -hmm. that that might be the right answer. So, like, how? I mean, are we actually talking about things that are fairly specialized in practice? And so that's not – you really do need to create a – separate pipeline where people who already have those skills coming in can be deployed? Or, like, is this just government looking at a program that isn't doing everything it can and saying we need to create a new one rather than saying we need to improve (laughs) the existing one? I was going to say, I don't think I have, like, a great answer. But obviously, as you well know, like, the value of a shiny new object in politics as much as anything can sort of be overstated. Um, Because, yeah, I think, like, especially with the public health side of it, like, as we were talking about before, like certainly you need like some training to to be able to to perform some of these functions, but like it's not like you need four years of nursing school, that kind of thing. Um, so you know, I think there's certainly an argument that we could do more to just kind of utilize some of the the kind of public service workforce that we already have. Then on the nursing side, like that's you know certainly I think an argument for a more kind of specialized unit like this nursing. Uh, reserve that uh, Betty Rambor at uh, the University of Rhode Island pitched to me. Like I was saying before, like we do have both obviously like people who are already currently working as nurses, but then also an even uh, wider circle of people who have at least been trained as nurses, even if they're doing something else right now. Um, So, you know, but that is like, I I started off talking about this, how there's kind of two sides of this coin. And I do think the public health side in a way is easier to fix because I think it's just a matter of resources. Like the the barrier to entry is not necessarily that high in terms of skills or that kind of thing. The nursing, I think, is is a little more like <laughs> goes more to sort of the heart of some of the problems of American healthcare, which are much naughtier to try to untangle. All right. Having solved the workforce problem, I think we're going to have to take a second break and talk about yet another problem in the American healthcare system, uh, particularly uh, high prices and what, if anything, they can buy for us. So stay tuned. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. Uh, so this week's white paper is titled, Do Higher-Priced Hospitals Deliver Higher-Quality Care?, and the answer is sometimes. <laughs> the, so the authors here are uh, economists Zach Cooper, Joseph Doyle, John Graves, and Jonathan Gruber of Obamacare fame. Mm. And they find that higher price hospitals do on average have patients with fewer deaths. So in that sense, the answer is yes. And they have a pretty interesting data set on this, that they're, they're using patients who were picked up by ambulances, by private ambulance companies. Um, and the Companies routed different patients to different hospitals semi-randomly. And so the main differences between the patients were just that they went to different hospitals as opposed to like one hospital just happened to get richer or healthier patients or something like that that would confound the results. 
But well, just to say, this experiment is based on the fact that if you're being picked up by an ambulance, you don't actually get to control which hospital you go to. I forget who it was that said that behind every natural experiment is a massive policy failure. <laughs> 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 this is definitely a, this, the Oregon Health Study. There's there's a lot of like really grim uh, policies that have led to interesting research. Um, but... The big X factor that the paper seems to find is sort of how much competition there is in the hospital industry, whether there's just a couple of big hospitals or just one big hospital or a number of, of hospitals that are competing against each other. If there's lots of competition, it seems that higher prices do lead to higher quality, that mortality rates are lower among patients who go to those hospitals. But if you're in a really concentrated area where there isn't competition, you're not buying much of anything. So Dylan Scott. What do you make of of this overall and sort of how does it sort of fit into your overall understanding of what we know about about paying for healthcare and, and quality? Well, yeah, I think fundamentally it just goes to that idea that like in a lot of places in the United States, there is not a strong incentive for hospitals to provide quality care, especially in when if they have grabbed up so much of the market share that you'd don't have any other options. We have just not uh, structured the way that we that we pay for healthcare in a way that incentivizes those health systems to focus on the quality of care that they're providing. On the other hand, you know, it, it certainly you know makes a, a bit of a case that like you know the market can can provide some of that stimulation. But like as I think, I can't remember. I don't have the number right in front of me. But uh, you know, the they they make the point that I think it's like close to seventy percent of like the markets in the the healthcare markets in the U.S are highly concentrated. Um, so like it's it's much more the exception to be in a, an area that has robust healthcare competition that is propping up quality in the way that they describe. And it did make me think of this nursing story that I've uh, alluded to that I'm working on and this idea of, because like the idea there is like obviously nurses like improve quality, not obviously, but like it has been found that healthy nursing, like nurse to patient staffing ratios, that kind of thing, increase the quality of healthcare. But because there is no like revenue to be generated out of employing more nurses, hospitals still like tend to minimize their nursing staffing as much as possible. Um, so like you can imagine a scenario with like with these hospitals where it's like if you're in a, a competitive market, then maybe you do make some of those investments because there is like a kind of economic gain from investing in those kinds of things and generating more quality care. But as you know, as the kind of core finding of this paper finds, like if there isn't that kind of economic incentive for for a hospital to make those kinds of investments, then why would they? Because like as you're saying, Dara, like ambulance picks you up and if there's no other hospital to go to, like that's where you're going and you're going to get the care that you're going to get. And, you know, there isn't really anything pushing the hospital other than like altruism, I guess, to try to do better by you. Even when there is an effect on mortality, I have questions about like the effect size here, right? Because they're saying that like an increase in two standard deviations in in expense, increases spending by 52% and lowers mortality by one percentage point. And 52% seems much bigger than one percentage point. And they're, I understand. They're so, percentages of different things, but yeah. yeah no, no. Well, this is, this is kind of my question. Like, I definitely understand how mortality is a very big downside risk, right? Yes. <laughs> but what I don't know, because I don't understand the industry all that well, is how well does mortality track with other health outcomes? Like, if you're not being admitted for a genuinely life-threatening thing and they don't screw up badly enough to kill you, then 
is a hospital that has a lower mortality rate in more life-threatening circumstances also likely to provide you with better care and more of an upside than a than an inferior hospital or are those pretty different things so one of the more interesting numbers within the paper is that in sort of not very concentrated markets so ones where there's decent competition between hospitals each life saved comes from another like 1.09 million dollars in health spending They point out that the federal government, for all kinds of regulations, has this thing called the value of a statistical life to figure out, you know, as as Homer Simpson once said, you know, sure, we could make the speed limit 55 and sure, some people would live, but millions more would be late. (laughs) So (laughs) to make decisions like this, we we use this this value of a life number to weigh against economic costs. And the EPA's is about 8.7 million. So this is a lot below that. And so by that standard this health spending seems to be buying something that that people are willing to pay for. At the same time, I also come from a context of writing a bit about global public health and for like malaria interventions, like four to $5,000 per life saved is considered a pretty good number. Um, and and so it's not exorbitantly expensive. It's probably worth it. But it's it's not like the most cost efficient public health intervention you could imagine either is, is sort of where I came down on that. And again, that's only for these hospitals in relatively competitive areas. If you're in, say, a rural area that can only sustain one hospital and they increase their spending, it's not clear to me how uh, how much you're going to actually get out of that. Yeah. That is all for us today. Thank you to Darlind and Dylan Scott for joining the panel and for for everyone listening for dealing with the fact that we have two Dylans. We made it through. I think it was not too confusing. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Uh, Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. 